right, you may be seated. Good morning. Now, one of the things that I enjoy doing, and this is my, one of my small hobbies, I enjoy reading uh, different novels, different in the fantasy genre. Now, the one that most people know, the one that have the most famous movies and all of those things, is Lord of the Rings. And that is one of my favorites. Now, I, am, I do know, though, that not everyone is familiar with the stories. But in those stories, I have lots of different characters that I, I really appreciate. But one of my favorites is a man named Faramir. Now, Faramir is part of this family, and their role is to be the stewards of one of the main kingdoms. Their role is to be there to take care of the kingdom until the return of the king. The line of kings has been broken, and there hasn't been king, a king in generations. Faramir's father is the main steward, and Faramir also has a brother. Now, all of them, all three of them, desire the solution, the salvation of their city, of their country. Because evil is coming, it's evil is setting in and is going to destroy it. And all three of them desire that their country would return in glory. But the way that they see that this solution should happen is very different. Faramir's father and brother think that the solution will, be, will come in strength. That they need some weapon of power. That the solution is even going to be found in themselves. And when they have different opportunities, both of them, to seize power, they try to take it. On the other hand, Faramir is given even a greater opportunity to seize glory, to seize power for himself, but instead he pushes it away. All three of them desire the solution. And yet only Faramir truly sees the solution in the end. That they all thought that they were ready for the solution to come, but in reality, only one of them was. Throughout the Gospel of John, the author, John, is going to present both those who are and are not ready for the return of the king. Some of them are looking and they are prepared. They all think that they're ready. They all want that solution, and yet not all of them are. And the author John is going to show two different types of people. He's going to show all of these different interactions that Christ has, and some of them are ready and will receive the king, and yet others will renounce him, they will reject him, even to the point that they will kill him on the cross. John is going to highlight these people. Again, what's fascinating, though, is all of them claim to want the same thing. They all want that salvation. But what makes the difference between people who are truly ready for the king and those who are not? 
Our passage this morning, which David just read for us in John 1, starting in verse 19, tells the story of this man. It's the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, John's role is to get Israel ready. His role is to prepare a way for the Lord, prepare a way for the king. But not only is John's, that is his mission, John also serves as an example of one who truly was ready. If we want to get a glimpse, what does it look like for someone to be ready for the king, we can look at the example of John. So first what we're going to do is we're going to look at what John's ministry is, what John's example is. Then we're going to see proof that John was ready in how John responds to the revelation of Christ. Our big idea this morning is this. A ready heart receives the revelation of Christ and bears witness to him. A ready heart receives the revelation of Christ and bears witness to him. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now right here as we begin our passage, we're introduced to two different characters. We have John the Baptist and the Jews. Now at this point in our story, we don't know that much about John. We're not really sure yet what his identity is. Just like the Jews, we might also ask, John, who are you? On the other hand, though, we do have a good idea of who the Jews are. The Gospel of John comes after the entire Old Testament. We know that the Jews are God's chosen people, that God has selected them. We have seen God provide in miraculous, miraculous ways for them and even dwell in their midst, first in a tent or the tabernacle, and then later in the temple that Solomon built. And yet at the same time, even though that they are the chosen people, even though they have received so much, we also know from their story that time and time again they have abandoned God and his commands and that abandonment, that rejection, has led to discipline and judgment. But even though the Jews have continually turned away from God, God has not abandoned them. Under all of their betrayals lies this theme of God's promise. That God has said he is going to do something and that he will, in fact, do it. The promise that all would one day be made right. The promise that their failures would be forgiven. The promise that the conquering king was coming. Now, at this point in the story, this is the part where John appears. The Jews have not heard from God in over 400 years years. Right now, the nation of Israel is still under that judgment because of their disobedience, and they are under the tyranny and the rule of Rome. And they are ready for salvation to come. 
They are waiting for it. And in their mind, they have fixed the problems that have caused them to have discipline. No longer are they worshiping golden calves. No longer are they raising the different poles of idolatry. Now they think, no, we've, we've removed those things. We are not idol worshipers anymore. No longer have they abandoned the law of Moses. They have not only follow, are starting to follow the law of Moses, they've added on to it. They've said, no, we are really going to be ready. In their minds, they are ready for the Messiah to come. They are ready for the solution. They are ready for the promise that they are expecting. And this is the moment that John steps onto the scene. Now, John isn't just some guy. We know from the other Gospels that John was preaching, and his preaching was calling attention. People were going out into the wilderness to see who this man in the desert was. And people were being baptized by him. So John was having all of these people come to him. And so the Jews who are looking for the coming of the conquering king, they're wondering, who is this man? And so they go to John and they ask the question. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? Their question is pretty open-ended, and yet John answers by saying he knows exactly what they're asking. He says, no, I'm not the Christ. He confessed and did not, not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, John knows that they're not going around, the, the, these Jews are not going around and just doing a census, or maybe they're just trying to research, to write a biography of all the people, and they're just asking everyone, who are you? Who are you? And then they ask John, and he's like, hey, I'm John. I like locusts and honey. What's your name? No, John, John understands exactly what they're asking. He knows what they're looking for. So he confesses. He doesn't deny. He confesses, I am not the Christ. Now, I imagine that the Jews were disappointed in his answer. They were ready in their mind. They were looking for something. They were looking for those promises to start. They wanted to begin the process of conquest. And now John says, I'm not the promise. But they're not going to give up. If John isn't the Christ, maybe he's another Old Testament figure. Maybe he's someone else that's part of the promise. Maybe he can still be part of getting this thing started. So they ask him, verse 21, and they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now this second question is proof that John really did correctly perceive what they were asking with their first question. Even though they just said, who are you? John did understand correctly that they were asking more than that. Because they're saying, okay, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the Messiah, the promised one, might you be Elijah? Now, if you remember the last time, the, the last word that the Jews collectively are aware of that came from God— was 400 years earlier. If you look at Malachi, the last paragraph of the last book of the Old Testament, God gives one final promise. This is what Malachi 4-5 says. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In the Jews' mind, they're asking, if John's not the Christ, maybe he's at least the one who comes before the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. And you know what? In their minds, that's still pretty good. Because they're thinking back, well, what did Elijah do? Elijah called down fire on his enemies. Elijah caused judgment and stopped the rain. Elijah preached a message that's of judgment to those who did not repent. This is still a good thing. If he can't be the Christ, maybe at least he's Elijah. But again, John responds in the negative. What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, if you've read the other Gospels, this answer from John might confuse you. Because we know that in the other Gospels, Jesus himself says that John the Baptist was Elijah. The, the, pro, the angel who prophesied and said that John was going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth said to Zechariah, and your son will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So what gives? Why is John telling them when they flat out ask him, are you Elijah? And John says, no. What's going on? Does John disagree with God? Does John disagree with the angel? Now, some people say at this point, well, John didn't know. But that's okay because Jesus knew. And it's more important what Jesus says than what John the Baptist said. I don't think that's what's happening. The reason I don't think, there's two reasons I don't think that's the case. The first reason is because Zechariah, John's father, knew the prophecy. He knew that John was coming in the spirit of Elijah. I don't think if an angel told me the identity of my son, I would keep that from him. So John probably knew from his father, but on beyond that, in a little bit, in the next few verses, John's going to tell them he is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So John's not unaware of his role before Christ. So what's going on? Why does John say no? He knows, just as he perceived the question, who are you, that there was an underlying meaning to that question, John knows there's also an underlying meaning to the question, are you Elijah? See, what they're expecting is an Elijah that's going to come back in the signs of power. An Elijah that's going to bring back judgment to the enemies of God. They're expecting an Elijah who will literally, in the flesh, return. And so when they're asking, John, are you Elijah? What they're asking is, are you the same person who arose into the skies in a chariot of fire? Are you the same person who did all those miracles? And John is saying, no, I'm not that Elijah that you're expecting. Now, this isn't the only time that the Old Testament has done these things. When it talks about Christ, it often says David will return, that David will rule forever. Now, is it literally David? No, it's Christ. It's using a type. It's looking forward. So when they ask, are you Elijah? John understands what they're asking. And if he had said yes, then he would confuse them. They're already not ready. But if he were to say yes to that, that would even take them further. But beyond that, John's mission is not to make himself greater. He's trying to point them 
to Jesus. So John says, I am not Elijah. Again, the Jews are disappointed. But the third time's the charm. They have one more option. Maybe John is another fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so they ask them in in the last part of uh, verse 21, are you the prophet? Once again, the Jews are looking for a person involved in fulfilling the promise. This time, they are speaking of the one promised to Moses from God in the book of Deuteronomy. Notice that they don't ask John, are you a prophet? They ask John, are you the prophet? What they're referring to is what God told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. This is what it says. 18, 17 through 19. And the Lord said to me, and this is Moses, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Again, the Jews are looking for the wrong thing because in this, they're looking for a different, a third person. Not the Christ, not Elijah, but the prophet. The thing is, in Acts 3.22, we see that this prophet is, in fact, Christ. Even later in the Gospel of John, Jesus claims, I am giving you the words that the Father has given to me, just as the, what it says in Deuteronomy. So when they say, are you this third person? They don't understand. They're looking for the wrong thing. They're expecting the wrong thing. And when John says, he answers them, no. They're at a loss. They know that this guy has to be someone. They're looking for someone, and yet John isn't their first three guesses. So then they just turn. We don't know who you are. You've got to tell us. Look what it says in verse 22 through 23. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And this is John's longest answer and the most he will ever talk about himself. Because as we know, we'll see later in John, John is all about making much of Jesus and little of himself. But he's going to answer them now. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, there's a beautiful imagery here that if we think back to the prologue that we did last week, The beginning verses described the appearing of Christ using a metaphor, and the metaphor metaphor was the Word. Now, in that prologue, it makes it very clear. John is not the Word. John has confessed it. I am not the Christ. But John is the voice. John is the voice that will proclaim the Word. John is the voice that will point and say, this is is the word. But here's the irony. Each of the questions the Jews asked basically was the same question. Each time they asked the question, basically what they were asking was, are you the fulfillment of an Old Testament process, a promise? Are you the fulfillment? Are you part of what's going to bring the promise? 
And when they don't have any other guesses, they just leave it up to John and ask, who are you? And then John tells them, I am the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. I am the one promised in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, we read earlier in our, uh, in our service, and the context that that promise comes in is 39 chapters of Isaiah telling Israel, you are going to be judged. And then in verse chapter 40, he says, comfort. Comfort. There is still a promise. Verse 3 says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is John saying? I am the one Isaiah said would come. I have come to make people ready. The imagery in Isaiah is preparing the way for the king. It's making the road straight. The valleys will be filled. The mountains will be brought so that the quickest, fastest, easiest way for the king to arrive is ready. Now, he's not speaking literally about a road. He's talking about the reception of Israel for their king. Are you ready? Is it easy for this king to come? Again, notice the irony. Three times the Jews have asked John if he is part of the fulfillment of the promise. And here John flat out tells them, I am part of the promise. They should be celebrating. They should be celebrating, okay, good, this is what we've been waiting for. But they aren't. Why aren't they? Because John's answer doesn't fit with what they're expecting. In their mind, they're ready. What's the implication of God sending someone to prepare the way? What's the implication? That the way isn't already prepared. For God to send John, to send a voice, to prepare the way, implies that they aren't actually ready. And the Jews aren't willing to accept that. What do you mean we're not ready? We're ready. We've been doing the right things. We have all these things. And yet John tells them, I'm the fulfillment of what they, the questions they've been asking, and they gloss over it. We're going to see in their next question, they go back to their first three questions and completely disregard this one. Here's the principle for us. Desiring salvation is not the same as being ready for the Savior. Desiring salvation is not the same thing as being ready for the Savior. Many people desire salvation. The Jews desired salvation, but that's not the same thing. Now, at this point, the Jews' disappointment and misunderstanding of John's identity causes them to ask about his role. Verse 25 says, They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The Jews are concerned about what John is doing. John is baptizing. Now, Jews were familiar with the concept of baptism, but for them, it was the way of a Gentile being brought in. 
in a way that a Gentile demonstrated that he was going to be cleaned. It was a way that the, dem- the Gentile demonstrated a new identity. Now, that makes sense to the Jews. Yeah, of course, they're not ready. They need baptism. They need to become ready. But John's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. So they're saying, John, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? We're already ready. But look at their question. If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, what did they skip? They skipped John's answer. John already told them. I'm coming to prepare a way. So when they're asking, why are you baptizing? Their answer, the answer's already there. John's baptizing to make them ready. We know from the Gospels, we also know from Acts 19, Paul uh, talks to different disciples who have been baptized by John, and he tells them that John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. Repentance is to turn away from something. John is telling people, you need to turn away from the, this, the idea that you are already ready, that you already have everything you need. Turn away from that. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Recognize what John is saying. He's saying, I baptize with water. It's just water. There's no, nothing special about the water from John. It's meant as a visual representation of the repentance and readiness of the heart of those being baptized. But then John turns it on the Jews and demonstrates their unreadiness. Among you stands one you do not know. Why don't they know him? Because they're not ready. They think they're ready, but they're not. I'm baptizing because I need you to understand you're not ready. Now here's the other principle for us. Being ready requires repentance. You can't choose God. You can't recognize God if you're not willing to turn away from your own salvation. Now, John was ready. We see John's readiness in his display of humility. Look what he says. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The person who stands among you that you don't know is the king. He's high above me. He's on a different level. Now understand the extreme humility that John is demonstrating. When he says, I am unfit to untie his sandal, that was something that was reserved for slaves. Disciples were not allowed to do that. It was too low of a position. John is saying, this person is so much beyond me. I'm not even, I am lower than a slave to him. I'm nothing compared to him. Here's the principle. Being ready does not mean being worthy. Being ready does not mean being worthy. What we're going to see in the answers of the Jews throughout the entire book, they think they are worthy. Jesus is going to have, uh, in chapter 8, an encounter with them. And they're going to say, we are the sons of God. We are the sons of Abraham. We are worthy. And Jesus is going to say, you're not. You're the sons of Satan. You're not worthy. 
But John's humility shows here that he is ready because he's not looking at himself as worthy. He will never be worthy, but he's ready. Now here's how we can see the proof of John's readiness. We can see the proof and the Jews' lack of readiness in how they respond to Jesus. Right now, we're just going to look at John's response to Jesus, but throughout the rest of the book, we are going to see how the Jews respond, and they were not ready to receive their king. Look at verse 29. Look at John's claim about Jesus. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now notice the difference between John and the Jews. The Jews came to John and had all of these questions. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? John gets a glimpse of Jesus and knows. John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John was ready for the revelation of Jesus. A ready heart receives the revelation of Christ and bears witness to him. Not only, though, does John's lack of questions demonstrate his readiness, but also the content of his claim. John recognized the role of the Messiah in a way that the Jews weren't prepared to recognize. What does John say? He says, behold the Lamb. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. What is the illusion that John is making? Here is the perfect sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, God told his people what to do with sin. But none of those solutions were complete. None of them could truly take away sin. In the Passover or the sacrifices of lambs, all of those just meant as a covering, as an atonement. But they couldn't. Just the blood of a lamb can't take away sin. Hebrews talks about that. But John is looking and saying, this is something greater. This is something better. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not just the atonement of sin. He's the, our propitiation. Jesus does not just cover us from the wrath. Jesus absorbed the wrath. He is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. But John is making a shocking statement about the Messiah here, something that the Jews were not ready to recognize. He's saying two things. One, the Messiah is going to die. No one was expecting a king that would return to die. The second thing John is saying is, the Messiah is coming for the world. The Jews weren't looking for that. They weren't looking for the lamb who would take away the sin, not of just the Jews, but of the world. Our principle here is that being ready means submitting to God's plan of salvation, not your own expectation. Submitting to God's method of salvation, not our own expectation. No one was expecting a lamb of God. They wanted the conquering king, but what they couldn't see was that the way that the king conquered was through the death of the lamb and through the resurrection that happened. 
Now, what does John do after seeing Jesus? He affirms again his position under Jesus, that humility. Look what he says in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John's position, he understands he's under Christ. John knows that Jesus is preeminent. That's what we looked at last week. This word, this preeminent word that is the greatest. Now John understands that in two different ways. One, he understands it, is because he was before me. He ranks before me because he was before me in the sense of time. Remember what the first verse that we looked at said back of last chapter, of, of last week. In the beginning was the word. And the idea was that the word was always there. John recognizes that, that Jesus was prior to him. But John also recognizes that Jesus' position is greater. Because of the third phrase that it says, the word was God. This is preeminent because he came before me. But his position is also so much greater And it is to reveal this preeminent word that John ha finds his role. He finds his purpose in revealing. Look at the 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John's purpose is to prepare Israel for the revealing of Christ. As we've already seen throughout our passage, John wants people to be ready. His baptism is part of that. He baptizes them with water so that they would be ready for the revelation of Christ. We see John's readiness to receive in his willingness to witness. Look what he says. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. When he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, this is the first time that in this Gospel of John that the author John is bringing out the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is going to be a theme throughout the Gospel of John. None of the other Gospels speak so much of the Holy Spirit as John does. But what exactly is John witnessing? There's something significant in what John says about the Spirit. Others throughout the Old Testament have received the Spirit before. But here's something different. Look what it says. And it remained on him. This is something that has never been seen before. Throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and anoint people for a specific purpose. We see the Spirit coming on people to prophesy and giving them skills to build the tabernacle. We see the example of the Spirit that was given to King Saul but then was taken away. But here, the Spirit remains. Now, here's what I love about John there's no boasting. There's no looking at himself, ha, huh, you all thought you were ready, but I actually was ready. I saw him and I knew. I knew all of this. I am so much better. You guys are all terrible. John doesn't do that. Look what he says in verse 33. I myself did not know him. John's admission, I didn't know him. 
It's the same thing that he tells the Jews earlier. Among you stands one you do not know. John wasn't casting aspersions on them and throwing them in the mud. He's admitting here. It's the second time in our passage he's admitting this. I myself did not know him. But what's the difference? John was ready. As soon as the revelation came, he was ready to understand and to receive it. But the only reason, and the reason that John does not boast, the reason that he received it is because God gave it to him. That's the other principle for us to understand. Our readiness must come from God. John's not boasting because it wasn't found in himself. Over and over throughout this gospel, uh, the author John is going to make it clear that it is only through the Father. Last week we saw this, that we are born, we are given the right to be called children of God, not by blood, not by the works of men, but by the Father, by the will of the Father. But John has received a revelation. Look at the rest of verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, he being the Father, he who sent me, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John received the revelation about Jesus from the Father. But we see here the entire Trinity. He who sent me is the Father. He on whom you see the Spirit. He being Jesus on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is him. This is Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We see here that God, all the members of the Trinity, are part of the revelation of Jesus. They are all part of announcing the King. The beauty of this verse, though, is that there is a better baptism. John says, I baptize with water, but there's one who is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. This is what we call spirit baptism. It is what happens at the moment of regeneration. When you place your faith in Christ alone, Ephesians says that we are sealed by the Spirit. The beauty here is that Jesus, who was anointed by the Spirit, will in turn anoint those who follow him. Jesus says later in, in John that he will send the Spirit to his disciples. This promise, something that was never seen in the Old Testament, of the remaining of the Holy Spirit is now given to us through Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that the Spirit dwells in us but to only those who are ready to receive, only those who truly receive, only those who respond the way John responds. Look at John 134, the last part. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John responded through belief. John understood who the revelation of Christ was, and he believed. Almost every time the author John introduces someone who encounters Christ throughout his book, he tells us what their response was, and John's response was belief. John proclaims, this is the Son of God, this is the promised one. He started by proclaiming, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Now he proclaims, this is the Son of God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the illusion that we think of is back with Abraham. 
When Abraham, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and both the, uh, when Isaac is there, they're going forward to the altar, and Isaac says, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And in the moment that he is about to sacrifice his son, God tells Abraham, don't do it. I see that you love me because you are offering your only son. But here we see the better fulfillment of that. Because Jesus is the lamb, but he's not the lamb that's withheld. Jesus is the son of God who God gives as the lamb to die in our place. John believes. That's his response. But John does another thing. John, in John, we see an example of one who not only urged others to be ready, but he's also an example of one who was ready. And then when he received the revelation, he bears witness to it. Look at how many times he proclaims and bears witness to Jesus in just this one paragraph. Verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he who ranks before me. 32, John bore witness. Verse 33, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. A ready heart receives the revelation of Christ and bears witness to him. John was ready. John received the revelation and John bore witness to Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, my question for you are, is this. Are you ready to receive Jesus. Everyone is seeking salvation of some kind or another. Everyone is looking for a solution. The question is, will you ready your heart in repentance and humility to allow God to reveal his salvation, which is the only salvation? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. Repent from whatever it is that you think will save you, whatever you think is making you ready. If you think it needs to be, you need to be worthy to do this, you're wrong. You can never be worthy. We sang in a song earlier, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Or, if you think you're better, you will never submit to what you truly need. Believe in Jesus Christ as your only salvation. On the other hand, brothers and sisters, if you are here and you have already believed in Jesus, are you pointing to him? The world is looking for a solution but they are looking in the wrong places. They seek it in security, money, happiness, health, accomplishments, good works. It's, in, it's evidence in their speech, in how they talk, perceive what they're saying, seek to understand what they're looking to as the way in which they prepare themselves. They are, they're telling us, this is how I'm ready. And show them that there is only one way to actually be 
ready because there is only one way to the Father. We have a role to play. When people come and talk to us, point to Jesus. Bear witness to who the King really is. Close to the end of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the King, Faramir has been mortally wounded, and people think there is no hope. They take him to the houses of healing, and it looks like he's going to die. Until the rightful king comes and heals him. And the way that they will know the king is because of the healing that he brings. And after the king heals Faramir, he says this to him, Walk no more in the shadows, but awake. You are weary. Rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. I will, Lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? Who would lie idle when the king has returned? A ready heart receives the revelation of Christ and bears witness to him. Let's stand now and sing this song which sings the true identity and understands this Lamb of God who paid the price for us. Mm -hmm.